The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their health care practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Gary Greenberg, has been described by the documentary filmmaker Errol Morris as the Dante of our psychiatric age. Greenberg is a practicing psychotherapist, author of four books, contributing writer for Mother Jones, and a contributing editor for Harper's. His articles and essays have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Nation, Rolling Stone, and McSweeney's, and he is the recipient of the Eric Erickson Award for Mental Health Reporting. He's here today on Health Watch to talk about his new book, The Book of Woe, The DSM and the Unmaking of Psychiatry. Welcome to Health Watch, Gary Greenberg. Hi there. Let's start out with what the DSM-4 is, Gary, since uh, before we go into the controversy, just to orient our listeners to, to the, the function and the, the history around the book. Well, it's, uh, DSM stands for Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and it's a publication of the American Psychiatric Association. It's uh, currently, as of a couple of weeks ago, in its fifth edition. The book is a, uh, basically it's a dictionary of uh, mental disorders in which disorders are named and defined in such a way as to allow clinicians to sort of look you up and see what you got and make a pronouncement on what diagnosis you warrant. So you say that the DSM isn't a treatment manual, but that in indirectly affects treatment. Can you explain a little further? Well, sure. Um, it doesn't. Uh, it's important to say it doesn't affect treatment in the sense that you know, a, a clinician looks up uh, your diagnosis and decides which one you have, and that then straightforwardly tells the person what to do, whether it's with a drug treatment or psychotherapy or anything else. Um, so its effect is indirect. Its effect on treatment is, first of all, a DSM diagnosis is necessary to get paid <laughs> for treatment if you want to use your insurance company. And uh, while that sounds cynical, that's probably the most widespread use of it. It also has an indirect effect because... The DSM controls what what uh, mental health researchers look into when they do research at both the basic science and the applied level, and the DSM diagnoses particularly control what drugs get approved because in both cases you're dealing with the federal government first in the first case for uh, research money and in the second case for drug approvals and the bureaucracies really like it if your drug uh, your drug application or your research grant proposal are tied to a DSM diagnosis. So the best way to get yourself what you're after is to tie yourself to these diagnoses, even if you yourself don't particularly ex- uh, believe that the diagnoses are real or that they are a good way to describe what people are suffering from. And who are the people that are putting this manual together? Are, are, they, uh, are they independent in any fashion? Uh, well, they're all independent of each other, and most of them are independent of the American Psychiatric Association in the sense that they are not on the staff of the APA. But um, and they, you know, they're they're mostly academic um, researchers, mostly psychiatrists, mostly uh, American men, mostly affluent people. Um, and are they independent in the sense of? You know, like, are you thinking about drug companies when you ask that question? Well, I was when you talked about the defining of disease in order to get reimbursement. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, look, everybody's got conflicts of interest uh, starting there. I mean, there's not a every, – everybody who works on the DSM stands to benefit from it um, by just by virtue of it having authority. 
and then the individual disorders might give you um, your career. For instance, there was a movement afoot in this recent revision of the DSM-5 to eliminate a number of what are called personality disorders. One of the personality disorders slated for elimination was something called narcissistic personality disorder. And that move was opposed by quite a few people in the research community, and some of them were on the committee. And so, needless to say, the narcissistic personality disorder wasn't eliminated, because if it had been, it would have eliminated some people's careers. Sure. So so the DSM has always ha- held some controversy, but the DSM-5, it seems, is holding more controversy than, than ever, where people or psychiatrists who are involved in previous editions are coming out against it. Tell us a little bit about why this is such a controversial edition. Well, to be totally honest with you, I don't fully understand that. I mean, I've been working on this for two or three years now, and it's somewhat of a mystery to me exactly why Dr. Alan Francis, the psychiatrist who headed the uh, DSM-4 back in 1994, um, became so incensed about what was going on with the DSM-5. Um, it, he he saw, I think, what, what he was worried about was that the DSM-5 was going to be too ambitious and consequently would create a lot of new disorders that would in turn give opportunities to drug companies to make drugs and those drugs would be prescribed and more and more people would be encouraged to think of their suffering as psychiatric disorder. But I have to say that the DSM-5 in itself isn't really going to do that any more than Dr. Francis's DSM did or than the DSM-3 did. Um, the, The movement the momentum is in the direction of medicalizing our problems, whether they're mental or not. So the DSM-5 actually is going to look a lot, it does look like a lot like the DSM-4. It doesn't add that many disorders. It actually takes some disorders away. And I think what happened here is that there's just, psychiatry goes through these crises every so often. There's been quite a few of them in its history. And it's it's coming together of internal forces within the field who are dissatisfied with the state of diagnosis, and I think Al Francis is one of those people, and also an increasing suspicion on the outside among people who have seen friends and relatives or themselves diagnosed and treated uh, in a way that doesn't help them, and so psychiatry has fallen under a great deal of suspicion. I think one of the things that was motivating Francis was to try to head that suspicion off at the pass by blaming all the problems on the DSM-5 when really the problem with psychiatry goes much deeper than any revision of any particular revision of the manual. Well, can you talk about the controversy around the diagnosis of melancholia and how that points out this sure. deeper, that's, deeper that's, problem? That's, this is a good example. So people should understand that in the DSM in general, the, the problem with, with psychiatric diagnosis is that no psychiatric diagnoses can be tied to uh, biological findings. And we tend to expect that if a doctor says something is a disease, that that's what's going to validate his diagnosis. You're not going to let a doctor cut you open unless you have a reason to think that he knows what he's talking about and that it isn't just uh, you know him and a bunch of people that sat down one day and decided that that thing was a disease and should be taken out of you. Um, but psychiatry it doesn't have any of those, and it hasn't, it never has. Uh, so diagnoses are generally done by expert consensus, and the problem with that, of course, is that when you have a diagnosis of something like uh, I don't know bipolar disorder, and you're told you have to take powerful drugs that are going to change the way you function, 
um, you know, if, if that's not a real disease, it's going to make you suspicious. So when it came to time to redo the DSM-5, they wanted to see if they could tie any mental disorders to brain, to neuroscience, and discovered that they couldn't, except with one exception. A group of researchers tried to get the DSM-5 committees to look in to look at the possibility of putting in a diagnosis called melancholia. Melancholia is a form of depression that's been observed for a couple of thousand years. It's probably the most enduring psychiatric complaint. It has, it's a form of depression that's severe and intractable and not tied to external uh, stimuli like you know, bad bad breaks, a marriage breaks up, somebody dies. You know, it, it's it's unresponsive to treatment. It has very specific physical signs, and they wanted to have this diagnosis carved out of the major depression diagnosis, which is a much more polyglot diagnosis. And they also proposed that it could have biological findings in the sense that the people who fit that symptom profile tend to have uh, a, a, a cortisone metabolism. A, a stress hormone metabolism that uh, is different from everybody else's, which can be assayed through a blood test. And they tend to respond very uh, much to uh, two forms of treatment that also don't always work for other people. Um, uh, uh, the old style of antidepressants that came out in the 1950s called tricyclic antidepressants and electroconvulsive therapy, what used to be called shock therapy. They submitted all of these findings to the DSM committees, and this is a group of prominent psychiatrists who submitted the proposal. It was turned down. It wasn't even turned down. It wasn't even considered. They didn't even look at it except to send them a note back saying, yeah, this all looks good, and in fact, the guy who wrote it said, I think you're right, but it would be the only disorder in the manual that would have physical findings. And what he didn't say was, you know, they didn't want it there because it would make everything else look bad. And so the 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 conundrum then becomes patients, it seems, find some comfort in these ideas which are narratively compelling but not scientifically founded, like the broken brain theory for depression that serotonin is or a deficiency of serotonin is what's causing depression when in fact that has never been borne out in any uh, scientific way. Yeah, that's a great example. Now I'm not sure how to assign uh, you know blame for that. Uh, yes, we are all you know ever since ever since the discovery of magic bullet drugs back in the 19th century, there's been a tremendous temptation on the part of doctors and lay people alike to try to conceptualize as much of our suffering as possible in a model that would be amenable to that kind of treatment. Um, so to think of the whole panoply of human suffering as like a, an infectious disease where you can find the target and send in the magic bullet and be done with it. So I think that there's a, there's, that's how mythology works. Mythology requires both people to subscribe to the myth and priests to promulgate and strengthen the myth. And I think the psychiatrists play their part nicely by telling people that they have you know, biochemical imbalances in the brain that they have to take Prozac for even though the psychiatrists themselves know that's not true, know that it's never been proved that there's any such thing. Um, and then the, the people, we, you know, people don't think very critically about these things. They don't, partly because who knows, you know, it's very complicated. Does your average, your average person wants to take your doctor, take their doctor at, at their word? Uh, because otherwise, you know, you're, you're struggling through reams of in, unintelligible papers with words that you can't understand. 
In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Health Watch on KBOO 90.7 FM, and we're talking today with author Gary Greenberg about his book, The Book of Woe, The DSM, and the Unmaking of Psychiatry. So even though all these drugs are not uh, based on a understanding of the human brain and they don't match to our, any sort of uh, neurochemical markers, that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't work in some capacity. No, the, you know, one of the, here's to go back to your original question about the DSM, here's one of the really sad things. There's no question in my mind anyway that, um, that, the, that the drugs, psychotropic drugs work. You, you, they change serotonin metabolism and something changes in your consciousness. It's, but the problem is it's a black box. Nobody knows exactly what it's doing or why it has the effect that it does. Certainly it isn't because, you know, you had a serotonin deficiency in the first place. And the DSM makes it both necessary and also quite convenient for a pharmaceutical company to test a drug like Prozac against a disorder like depression because they don't really have another way to test it. Now, the reason that we have these ambiguous findings that show us that you know, the drugs don't really work much better than placebos may not be because the drugs don't work. It may be because we're not measuring what the drugs really do because they're so busy looking at depression. They're not looking at other, other measures that might tell us more about what a drug like Prozac does. And indeed, I think when people do do that research, they find there's a much stronger signal. When people take these drugs, there's a much stronger signal if you don't look at depression but look at things like personality factors. Interesting. And, and if the DSM is an attempt of psychiatry to become part of the rest of medicine, in a sense to ground itself in some sort of scientific manner, uh, it seems like the DSM-5 is doing things that go deeply counter to that. And the thing that comes to mind, Gary, is the bereavement exception and depression being removed. And uh, could you explain to our listeners what the bereavement exception yeah. is? So, so the bereavement exclusion is a good example of something. <laughs> it's a good example of a lot of things, not the least of which is what you just talked about. So back in the back in the 1970s when psychiatry was one in one of these crises that I mentioned before um, these the, the crisis was tied to the lack of a coherent diagnostic system the biggest reason for that just so you know was because uh, that was right in the on the heels of having decided that homosexuality was not a mental disorder which was a great move that's exactly the kind of thing you want psychiatrists to see but they had really no justification for it uh, other than the fact that Politically, it didn't make sense to call uh, homosexuality a disorder. So when it was removed, it was removed by vote. And so even as psychiatry did the right thing, it revealed itself as a kind of uh, uh, political animal. So the decision was made to create a new kind of diagnostic manual, the one we have today, which would be a list of disorders with the symptoms of them that you could look up in like a dictionary. Well, the problem was that when they came to time to look at the major depressive disorder, the symptoms of major depression, and there are nine of them, any five of which qualify you for the dis disorder, uh, people who were in mourning qualified for the diagnosis. A lot of people, if not most, would, would actually meet the criteria for major depression. Well, that created a problem. The, the question was, does, are we going to call people who are you know, mourning a loss of a loved one, are we going to call them mentally ill? And the answer was, well, we don't want to do that. So what we're going to do is we're going to create an exclusion. We're going to say, okay, if you're recently bereaved, even if you meet the criteria, you don't have the illness. 
Now, this went totally against the whole idea of the DSM, which was of that of the new DSM, the DSM three and, and subsequent, because that whole idea was we're not going to think about the, the cause of things. That you don't do that with regular diseases. You don't care if somebody's got lung cancer, smoke cigarettes. It doesn't matter. The disease is the disease, and so to say, well, depression isn't depression if if it's in the context of mourning was to go against everything. However, they did it anyway because the the, the obvious absurdity uh, of doing otherwise was clear. So then, what happened was that a bunch of researchers who were not friendly to the DSM said, "Why only bereavement? Why not unemployment? Why not foreclosure? Why not divorce?" And indeed, did some work research showing that there wasn't any reason to exclude only bereavement. And so the DSM five committee were faced with the question, "What do we do now?" And they they had a choice: they could either eliminate the bereavement exclusion and just say anybody who has the symptoms of depression after two weeks of those symptoms, regardless of what happened to you, uh, to set this off, if anything, that person is depressed because depression is depression. Or they could say, well, really, there are, are people whose depressions are set off by, uh, by um, life circumstances, and we should, we should distinguish those people from the others, uh, which, of course, to you and me and most people, that makes sense but not to psychiatrists. So what they did was they eliminated the bereavement exclusion. And so now, if you are in mourning after two weeks, if you meet the criteria for depression, you now can be declared mentally ill. So so you're suggesting that the removal of the bereavement exclusion is more a product of a philosophical and scientific conundrum than a further example of uh, us trying to medicalize normal uh, symptoms in order to profit from it. Yeah, you know, look, there's look, there's unsavory aspects to all of this, but that's just because psychiatry, like much much of medicine, is fully infested with the for the pharmaceutical uh, by the pharmaceutical companies and in general by the um, by the uh, for-profit healthcare system, you know. But this psychiatry, there was a conscious decision back in the 1970s when they revamped the DSM in order to get the psychiatrists on board with this new approach to diagnosis, they had to promise them that they wouldn't lose their livelihood. And the way they did that was they said, okay, we are going to create these, you know, very specific diagnoses, but we're going to create a lot of them. In fact, we're going to ask you to tell us what you're treating and we will make diagnoses to fit it. And so the decision was consciously made to expand the reach of psychiatry in, in, you know, 1975. And in, in the DSM-3 came out in 1980, and indeed what's happened since then is what happened almost immediately was that the prevalence of mental disorder, the amount of mental disorder in the population did go up, but it has stayed the same. No, through, no matter which edition of the DSM is, is in power, it stayed the same because it, the book, no matter what the specifics, <laughs> made it possible to diagnose just about anybody. So let's say you go to the doctor and you have you recently been bereaved and the doctor decides to give you a diagnosis and the bereavement exclusion is in force. Nothing's to stop that doctor from giving you a different diagnosis, generalized anxiety disorder, adjustment disorder. I mean, the, the book is full of them. And so there was never this idea of further medicalizing things so that drug companies can take advantage of it. It does happen. But it's going to happen no matter what, because we have that every disease is a market. Every, every time there's a diagnosis, there's a market. The only advantage that new diagnoses give is that they give a drug company an opportunity for a new patent, and that is lucrative. But they're not, 
the fact drug companies are no longer really developing psychiatric drugs. They've gotten themselves out of the psychiatric drug business recently. So tell us a little bit more about that. You, you talk in the Book of Woe about the empty drug pipeline and, and sort of a mutual desire for a split between the psychi- psychiatric community and the pharmaceutical industry, which seems surprising to me when you think about how much some of these medications are still prescribed and the growth in, in, in the prescription of the medications. Yeah, well, that, that's, it is really interesting. And, and what's happened is that um, research, neuro- neuroscience research, basic research, the kind that the gov- government pays for, has been coming up empty for a long time now. And that means that um, there isn't anything new for, psych- for drug companies to pursue. And so they've, they've and, and, and in addition to that, there are, um, well, there's a lot of complicated stuff going on with the whole economics of the pharmaceutical industry. But to put it simply, it economically just doesn't make sense for them to be in that business anymore. The central nervous system, the brain, has just turned out not to yield very well to the model that the entire pharmaceutical industry is erected upon. But yet, aren't antidepressants still one of the most prescribed medications? Yeah, but but where's the money in them anymore? You know, they're, they're off patent. That's true. So the money goes to the generic drug makers and to the drug companies that are smart enough so now that now that um, bereavement can be treated as a disease, uh, theoretically, a drug company can go to the FDA and get its particular antidepressant, and there is one that's already been sort of tested on on bereavement, uh, Wellbutrin, and get it for uh, get an indication for it for uh, for um, uh, bereavement for for whatever de- bereavement related depression, I guess they would call it. But let's remember. You don't need to get a diagnosis to get the drug. These are two separate issues. Uh, Three-quarters of the antidepressant uh, prescriptions that are written in this country are written without a psychiatric diagnosis. Well, let me, let's unpack that. I found that really fascinating, the, that 72% of antidepressants are prescribed in the absence of a psychiatric diagnosis. What is that caused by? I, I mean, when I imagine, I think maybe the doctors wanting the patient to avoid a mental illness stigma for their insurance company, or maybe they're just, they just don't believe in the DSM guidelines, or maybe they're just being lazy and they're, they're saying, oh, you're sad. That's the same as being depressed. Here's a pill. So how do we figure out? You've nailed it. <laughs> I think you got it right there. All those reasons. I mean, th- th- there are some docs that just don't want to put uh, major depression in your chart. There are some who uh, feel that you know their job is somebody came in with a complaint and their job is to write write a prescription. Um, there are some who think that the whole thing is nonsense and that, that the thing that it's a placebo, but they might as well toss it in, in their direction. Uh, I think that there's some healthy mixture, there's some uh, some unsavory mixture of contempt and uh, um, and a genuine desire to help uh, mixed in there. But the important part of it is that you can. The important part of it is that you can see how uh, this uh, detached diagnosis is from treatment, and this goes all the way down the line, not just with antidepressants. Well, the irony then with the antidepressant statistic would be that if all these studies were done based on the criterion in the DSM, but the physicians aren't using the same guidelines, then you could actually say that most of the antidepressant medications prescribed are off-label. Yes, there's no question about that. 
and uh, it's probably just as well because most of the clinical trials for antidepressants failed. So, the, yeah, <laughs> failed I mean, the, depression. So it's very interesting. Yeah, you know, they're off-label, but uh, but uh, the, the on-label doesn't appear Isn't to be so very good. useful. So let, let's finish the show today uh, with a, just a couple brief comments on the research domain criteria and the, the effort to start over from scratch with mental illness. Yeah, so that's an interesting thing. Right before the DSM came out, the head of the National Institute of Mental Health, uh, a fellow named Tom Insel, announced that the NIMH was going to distance itself from the DSM. It wasn't that huge of a revelation. They've been saying this for years. In fact, in my book, I have a lengthy interview with him in which he you know, basically says the same thing and talks about the parlous state of American psychiatry and ties it directly to the DSM for the reasons we were talking about before. Now, the NIMH isn't just going to walk away. They're going to try something new, and their new approach is to start with the neuroscience that we know and look at the circuitry of what amounts to uh, symptoms of mental disorders. So let's say uh, uh, let's, they're going to look at fear, and they're going to try to elucidate the neurocircuitry of fear and not worry about whether that fear is part of an anxiety disorder or a depressive disorder or a psychotic disorder. Now, what this really means is doing a lot of animal research on um, on behaviors that may or may not be tied to human behavior. So, for instance, with the uh, the, the, the fear uh, example I mentioned, what they're really looking at is something called the startle response. It's very specific. It's, you know, the response that, uh, that a rabbit or a guinea pig has if you startle it. And then, you know, you kill the rabbit and you look at its brain to see what happened uh, as best you can. It's very in very primitive, very early stages right now. But the basic idea is to develop not so much a, 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 a set of disorders, but a map of symptomatology tied to brain circuitry. Um, and obviously, the major thrust of this is towards drugs. And, and where would you like to see psychiatry to go, if not in the direction of the research domain criteria, and what is another option? I would, I would say, well, first of all, I don't know that that's, this is the wrong approach. I just think that, you know, we're years and years away, and I also think it's philosophically, it really is naive. It's got, they've got to do something about the mind-body problem. They've got to at least acknowledge it and understand that we may never be able to know how brain circuitry produces consciousness. It's all correlation, and that's a really important distinction because because these uh, kinds of initiatives have the effect of changing how we feel about ourselves and how we understand our lives. Psychiatry itself, I think, could do a good, a better job by focusing its resources on the truly uh, mentally ill, the seriously mentally ill people who are most needy. And the rest of us, the worried well that most of us therapists are seeing on a daily basis, I, I suspect that the solution to this problem is for us to get out of bed with medicine. We don't really belong there. And, the, you know, the, the DSM is just sort of the, the bastard offspring of, a, of an unholy alliance that got made early in the 20th century and is all about money. So, you know, another thing that we could do while psychiatry is concentrating its efforts, uh, you know, on, on the severely mentally ill, we, we might want to think about having a more honest practice that will make us less money. Well, Gary, it was a pleasure having you on Health Watch today. I was, I was really glad to be here. I appreciate all your intelligent questions. Great. We were talking today with Gary Greenberg, the author of The Book of Woe, The DSM, and The Unmaking of Psychiatry. If you missed part of today's program or want to listen to other Health Watch programs, you can go to the iTunes podcast store and just type in Health Watch as one word and pull up the archives. Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday Morning Radio Zine. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host.